Welcome to the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is the finale of Punk Rock Month here on the podcast, which as always is sponsored by Crooked Eye Brewing in the heart of Hapro, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014 and the cure for what ails you if you're a proto-punk, early punk lover is the Stooges, man. The Stooges are legendary, and they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and we'll talk about this during the episode, but there's so much to talk about. Marcus, you've been digging in with the Gimme Danger documentary. What are your takeaways from that as we get started on this episode of the podcast all about the Stooges? The Gimme Danger Jim Jarmusch documentary really gives you a raw look at who the Stooges were. It's honest. It's real. Nobody holds back. They all share their feelings. And they talk about some pretty tough topics and some pretty crazy times for the Stooges, as well as go into the history of the Stooges. And it opens... Before they get into the intro and the credits, at the point in like 73, 74, when the band was completely falling apart, they couldn't get any good gigs unless they were playing on a festival ticket. They were erratic live. Heroin was a huge problem between Iggy and James, and I think Scott did some heroin as well. Ron was the only one in the band who did not do heroin. I think he smoked a lot of weed and drank a lot of booze, but he also loved his food, too, and he admitted that when we talked years ago. But they really show, like, Iggy doing a lot of what Jim Morrison did, but closer where he would get in and taunt the crowd while he was in the crowd and he was doing that and some dude just laid him out and they show mm. Iggy cold on the stage and then the uh, roadies carry him off the stage and I think the set was over but yeah I think that was one of their well, last performances. You made me think of something there. He gave as good as he got in that kind of regard. There's pl probably plenty of people who have stories of having been punched in the face kicked in the face like your, your bad brain story uh, <laughs> by Iggy Pop or the mic stand or something like that. And it's funny you mentioned the doors because one of the things that got young Jimmy Osterberg into doing rock and roll was seeing the doors live at the University of Michigan. And Michigan is a big part of this entire episode, really, because they formed in Ann Arbor. Iggy was born in Muskegon, which is a really remote rural part of upper Michigan. But they came from all over, including the Ashton brothers moved to the Detroit area. And that's where this is all kind of based from D.C., which I didn't know until we started digging in here. Yeah, there are a couple of D.C. boys. Kathy Ashton, their sister, also played a big part of the story. She was dating one of the dudes in the MC5. So a bunch of frat boys were picking on the dudes from the MC5 at a show and Scott Ashton walked up to one of them and beat him across the bar. They left him alone. Oof. Like, crazy. There's a lot of brutal stuff in this yeah. story, These including how Iggy got his name, and I didn't know this either. I knew that he was in a lot of bands before he hooked up with the Ashtons and Dave Alexander to form the Stooges, and I think I'd seen that he was in a band called the Iguanas, but I never put the two together that a couple lunkheads gave him the nickname Iggy because he was in the Iguanas. I just never put that together in my head. I just learned that during the research as well and was like, what? So you were seven days ago old when you found that out? <laughs> yes, seven <laughs> days ago old I learned that. <laughs> I can't remember. How did he get his, uh, the pop? I read it and it totally is slipping my mind at the moment because of the other stuff that we have to talk research about. <laughs> Early call to the research team bullpen. Coffee hasn't kicked in yet either. Well, I'll tell you what, it is a morning session here on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. So coffee is not only, you know, normal, it's absolutely necessary. It's vital. <laughs> yeah, we do it whenever we can. And uh, this just worked out for us uh, to get together in the morning. The research team, their coffee must be hot and black this morning because they're already coming back to us with the answer on our question. And the short answer is the other guys in the band gave him the pop part. After somebody that they knew, he kind of resembled Osterberg. So 
they kind of gave him the nickname, hey, you're Iggy Pop. Hey, you look just like Osterberg. You know what I mean? One of those things. Fucking weird, man. During the documentary, they don't call him Iggy once. They call him Jim, Jimmy, or James the whole time. That's it. Yeah. They, yeah. Everybody in the movie is Jim, Jimmy, or James, except for the record people might call him Iggy. I get it. When people have familiarity with you, they're not going to be calling you just by your stage name. They're going to call you by your name, the name they've known you since they knew you, since before they knew you as Iggy Pop. True. So before we move on to other things, any final takeaways about the Gimme Danger documentary on the Stooges? Quite a few, actually. They were very different people. They were all very smart, too, in their own Surprise ways. Me. And even though they all dropped out of high school to pursue music careers, every single one of them was intelligent. They didn't really know how to play at the beginning of their career. They were evolving as they were falling apart, which is kind of a wild concept to really wrap your head bizarre, around. Bizarre They're growing reality. as and musicians it, and completely going fucking bonkers. The the recording schedule, the touring schedule, the publicity, the drugs, all of that just beat the shit out of them. That was the thing I think I had a hard time getting my head around was exactly what you just said, that they were evolving and devolving at the same time. Kind of a predecessor to Devo in that yeah, regard because I, they were as they get like you said they got better at playing as they were falling apart but oh before yeah. that they played their first show on Halloween in 1967 the psychedelic stooges I would love it if the internet had sound on that there has to be some sort of school recording somewhere who knows it would be one of those tape situations where they'd have to treat the tape mm -hmm. and yeah. get it to play but I have to um, say something though because you were talking about the intelligence of the members of the band, the Stooges, Iggy and the Stooges. And I know that in previous episodes, including during Punk Rock Month, one of our episodes, I say they were stupid as fuck and all that stuff. And I think that came across as a perception for me and maybe for a lot of people because they weren't that skilled at their instruments and the music was still raw. And ironically, we get more polished on raw power which is just another one of those little quirks in my head about the Stooges. But there at the beginning, we didn't see or hear much of people in bands. And Jim, as everybody calls him, was the guy who had the most visibility. But these guys weren't as dumb as I thought they were. And I want to apologize to anybody who was offended when I said that, knowing that these guys were on their own level, in their own way, thinking guys. They were, and they were world smart. Uh, Iggy, during a period, left Michigan and played with blues musicians in Chicago, really grew as a musician, and then he came back to Detroit. He was out smoking a joint after a blues show that mm. he had drummed on, and he was getting hired by black musicians to play white shows, and that's where he was making a little bit of money, but it wasn't consistent enough for him. Plus, at the time he smoked the joint, realized he would never be a blues musician, and realized he wanted to do his own version of the blues, one that spoke the way Iggy felt meant that he had to leave so he called Ron Ashton Ashton drove to Chicago and picked him up and wow. the Stooges started really forming and they were talking a bunch of smack about how they were a band and ready to go and like they were this great band and they had they didn't even have any songs written and they didn't really even know how to play it's so classic for that period of time where people were inspired. Whatever moved people, we've talked about this. The Beatles started a spark and Velvets maybe had big influence on these guys. Whatever bands motivated them to want to do it, not unlike the Ramones, they decided they were going to be in a band and formed a band and then figured out how to do all the other stuff. But yes. it worked out in the end. I mean, these guys, despite limited superstar delivery through the years, proved what they were, made it to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2010. But at the beginning, they were just these dumb-looking guys just doing all this crazy shit. And other than Lester Bangs, Danny Fields was really their champion. He got them and the MC5 signed to uh, Electra Records in 1968. And they made a lot more of it than the MC5, their predecessors in the proto-punk world, did, I think, anyway. 
And it's funny you mentioned that signing with Danny Fields because when he signed the MC5 and the Stooges, he signed the MC5 for 20000 And they were like, hey, man, you got to check out our little baby brother band. These kids are great. And so he signed him on the spot for 5000 after seeing him perform that night. The dude was like, they have a long way to go, but Iggy's pretty amazing. And these guys have something. So And none of them ate, so their rent and their drug money. It was covered for a while. They they probably figured we'll figure out the rest because yeah. that seems to be the mode of operation there yep. in uh, Stooges land. Yep. And then after they got signed, they're like, you have enough music to do an album. And they're like, yeah, 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 we do. And then Ron was like, oh, I better get to work. And that's when he wrote, <laughs> you know, that's when he wrote the riffs for like, I want to be your dog and a few other of the early songs. Dude. That song, if that was all they wrote, because think about how many bands in the proto-punk and in punk rock had one or two songs. If that was the only song they had, it would still make them an amazing band worthy of mention regularly when it comes to the early days of punk rock. We had this discussion during the week while we were preparing for this recording, and a new question came up into the mix. Are the Stooges really punk, or are they more like the godfathers of punk and just a dirty-ass rock and roll band? I swear you read my mind sometimes while we're doing this. We're here looking at each other over Skype, and I'm thinking, I want to get around to talking about this, where they really punk question that we discussed this week, and you bring it up, so let's let's talk about it. always have thought of them as the forefathers of punk rock. But while listening deep into all the crevices of their music this week, I'm hearing something else that says, yeah, they helped the process, but they weren't really straight up punk rock. When you listen to the stuff that is on Funhouse, that Steve McKay adds, the saxophone avant-garde stuff, the connections to all these people that are not punk rock. The fact that Frank Zappa touches on these guys. And we'll get into that when I start talking about my favorite characters in the Stooges. And I'm not talking to Mo, Larry, and Curly, okay? We're talking about <laughs> other Stooges, and we all have our favorites. But I started thinking about it, and I started thinking, well, this doesn't really feel to me like punk rock. And then I thought, okay, now stop for a second and think. Who would have descended that you know from punk rock? Could have, would have descended from this sound and the only band I immediately came across was Dead Boys and I'm thinking proximity with Cleveland and Detroit Mm -hmm. and the fact that there was crossover probably there across Mm -hmm. the lake and all that stuff and I'm thinking yeah this is why they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because things were different after them than before them and that's why the motherfucking MC5 still isn't in there and belongs in there because I still hold on to my contention that if not for the MC5 we might not have had the Stooges or at least not had them so easily partially because of what they were doing and partially because of what you mentioned about Danny saying, yeah, we'll take on your little brothers, see what they're all about. This is the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, and in case you haven't noticed, we're wrapping up Punk Rock Month in style, talking about Iggy and the Stooges here on the podcast. They are cast of characters, too. And I mean, obviously, Jim is the is the big character with uh, all of his actions and cutting on stage, his stage diving into his yeah. 50s and plus. And, uh, he was doing it in the like 2011-2012 tour. Like when they toured on uh, the weirdness, he was doing it. And then when they were on the road the final time, he was still doing stage dives and jumping into the crowd. So my guess is if given the chance, he'll still do it today. I want to talk about your interview that you shared with me from 2007. You were talking with Jim, Iggy, and then I guess it was Ron Ashton joined in, right? Yes. That must have been unbelievable. That was 2007. What was going on then when you did the interview? They had just released the Weirdness record and were coming to Philly like two weeks later. And right. so they were doing a quick promo call and I got to talk to him for about 20 minutes. Ron was hilarious, totally laid back. You can tell how much fun that guy has when he plays. And Iggy was more of the business guy. When you start talking, it's just Iggy, and then Ron joins in. And all I can tell you is that the presence of Ron on the call loosens up Osterberg. Completely. They seem to have great energy together. Maybe they should have done a podcast. Oh, wait a minute. There were no podcasts back then. But it really was very different than I expected, including Ron Ashton's John Wayne impersonation. That was pretty cool. (laughs) I mean, you know, but you were talking to Iggy then. You were talking about how they had played at Bam Margera's wedding. And he 
he had one of those moments and he just kind of opened up to you and said something that he admitted he has a strange sense of what's cool. And, and that was when he was talking about this club he was in that was like the Star Wars cantina scene. I mean, he's telling you all this really cool shit. And he also talked about the recording of the album and how they had been getting together since they started playing live at Coachella. And every three or four months, they'd get together for a week or two and they would play and play and play. And that's how they wrote the song for the weirdness over time and just kind of got back into the feel of it. And you hear that chemistry in the songs and in the album. Anytime any one of three subjects come up, you mention that you almost always mention the other two. If Berlin comes up, you always mention Bowie and Iggy and the birthday party. Yes. But in your interview, Iggy tells you that he lived in Berlin before the birthday party ever came to town. Wait a minute. You did this interview over 10 years. Did you just forget? I totally forgot that information wow, cool. because it's just one of those <laughs> things where, you know, when it was probably just afterward. Dude, you're clarifying our own question by being a rock and roll archaeologist and digging in and, mm -hmm. and sharing this with, with the podcast. Of course we will share, Ray, and you know I am hugely embarrassed that I forgot this nugget of information as I continue to romanticize that time in the Berlin scene and my love for Iggy, David, and Nick. Here's the little tidbit of my conversation with Iggy Pop, and you can hear my full interview with Ron Ashton and Iggy Pop at imbalancedhistory.com. Now, when you lived in Berlin in the 70s, did you live there when Nick Cave lived there when he was with the birthday party? No, uh, this was before, far before he lived there. You know, sometimes the best idea makes perfect sense. Let's do it anyway. Mm -hmm. And that brings up a point that maybe will weave itself in and out of the conversation during post-Stooges time, Ron Ashton had a hard time finding record gigs and getting deals, and it really bothered him because everybody would tell him, oh, yeah, you're one of our favorite guitarists. You're one of the most influential guitarists ever, and then they won't sign him to a record deal. You know, there's a quote from the great Hunter S. Thompson, and it goes like this, Marcus. The music business is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. And I think it applies to what Ron Ashton was experiencing at this point in time that we're talking about. That continued all through the 90s until Jay Maskus helped reunite the band. And he had Mike Watt with him. They were doing a Stooge set, and they were doing the Velvet Goldmine soundtrack, and they were looking for somebody, and the label people, of uh, Thurston Moore was involved in this. And they and were like, Mark Arm. Yep, Mark and Mark Arm, Arm from Mudhoney was doing some of the yep. vocals. And the label people or the soundtrack people for Velvet Goldmine were like, we need a guitarist who sounds like Ron Ashton. And they were bringing in all these yokels, and finally those guys were like, uh, hey, why don't we call Ron Ashton? I bet he'll say yes. And sure enough, he did, and that got him into playing again. And then Jay Maskus further uh, helped reunite the Stooges by getting the Ashtons and Mike Watt out on the road together and playing some songs, and it was doing really well. And Iggy got wind of it, and then they played Coachella in 2003, and then it was on. Yeah, well, I think once Iggy played with Mike and they got the vibe that it was that good, and they went for it. And he stayed with them all the way through their active years touring. Of course, uh, Mike from the Minutemen and Firehose and other mm -hmm. great bands, really one of the great underheralded bass players in yeah. rock and roll history. Did you know that at 42, he ended up getting some sort of like inner body infection and lost the use of his arm and had to relearn how to play bass? And he relearned by playing Stooge songs. Well, go to the basics, right? Yep. Well, the reason that they needed a Mike Watt to join the band was something that I didn't realize. And I mean, I knew that Dave Alexander he died young, but I did not realize that he was a member of the 27 Club and uh, a pulmonary edema, 1975 at age 27, right there at home in Ann Arbor. And uh, it was a part of his uh, pancreatitis, which was related to his alcoholism. So the bottle got a good man. And it's something to think about. If you're struggling and you might want to step back and think about the cautionary tales of people like David Michael Alexander. That's all I'm saying. I think he started drinking at like 10 years old, like some crazy young age. Well, we've gotten off on a track talking about the characters in the uh, Stooges world. And again, we're talking about the band, the Stooges. But not unlike the three Stooges in the movies and on TV, 
there are other characters that come into play. And I wanted to talk about some of them for a few minutes here while we're getting ready to go to the break. The first one I've already mentioned is my number four interesting character in the Stooges land. His name is Steve McKay or McKay. It was in a band called Carnal Kitchen, and his saxophone stuff on Funhouse made him like a must-be-there part of the band when they were performing, in the same way that Dick Parry had to perform with Pink Floyd on every tour after uh, Dark Side of the Moon. He became an essential part of that, and an interesting guy who brought in a different feel to things. And the next person, and then this is one that kind of blew my mind, was a guy they called Tornado Turner. His real name was Warren Klein. He worked with Lowell George in a band called The Factory, which was the predecessor to Little Feet. You want to know who produced their album? Who? The Master, Frank Zappa. Whoa. That's a pretty interesting character there. And I guess you'd call him the current drummer, Toby Dammit is actually Lawrence Cooks, and he uh, tours with the Bad Seeds these days when there's touring going on. Mm -hmm. But Toby Dammit is an interesting character in Stooges' world. But my number one top character in their world has to be the guy that you've mentioned a few times already, James Williamson. He was going to be a death jailer rock and roll kind of guy, I think. He started his first band when he was in uh, high school. I think he was ninth grade, right? band called The Chosen Few. It's only mentioned because part of his path. He was in the Chosen Few about the same time Ron Ashton That's right. was in the band, and Iggy Pop was in the band for a little while, and then he got in trouble, and he got shipped off to military school in New York. Right. I was reading about this, and this is all part of what makes yep. him such an interesting character. And then he comes back, and... He had heard about an audition with the band through the grapevine after Dave Alexander was fired from the band. Dave Alexander froze on stage and completely fucked up one night, and Iggy just at the end of that show was like, fuck you, you're fired, you're fired, you're done. Wow. How dare you show well, me like that? And then... My point about Williamson, Marcus, is that he was kind of like a wannabe kid. He he was younger than them. He looked up to them. He idolized them. And I think in some way, they were why he wanted to be in a band. Not to mention that, you know, he was friends with Ron Ashton. He he really wanted to be in the Stooges. And weren't there two of them at one point? Weren't, there, weren't they both in the band at one point? Yeah, Ron and James were in the Stooges together during the uh, third recordings. Afterwards, he goes through his time with the band, and he becomes a staff engineer at Paramount Recorders in L.A. and working on all different kinds of stuff. And they got him to work with Iggy on New Values, which is a solo record. That's why I said I thought he was the most interesting sidebar character. But in his case, he was actually a member of the band for quite some time. Yes, he was. And uh, after Ron Ashton passed away, he jumped back out of his uh, suit and rejoined the Stooges and continued to play with them again. You know why that is? Is because right around the same time, his company, I think he was working for Sony at that point. They bought him out of his contract mm -hmm. and then an opportunity to go back and work with his lifelong obsession, the Stooges. I just think it's an interesting little hook there. And I think he's a really great guy who added a lot to the band and kept them alive at a couple points. How he kept them alive with all the heroin they were doing is beyond me. He and Iggy were the crazy ones as far as the wild ones as far as that goes. Ron would just kind of drink. And once those guys started doing heroin, he ended up grabbing a girlfriend and holing up with her all the time because he didn't want to be around those guys while they were waxed on heroin. He totally was not into it. Well, there's another interesting character I wanted to mention, and that's uh, Scott Thurston, pretty talented guy. And the connection here is that Scott, he was well-known as a session guy and would join touring bands and stuff like that in demand, ended up joining the Heartbreakers for the Full Moon Fever Tour and never leaving. He was, he was with them, I think, through all the way through. And he's part of the equation in here, playing with these guys and recording with them for a while. All kinds of interesting people coming to the party here with the Stooges on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Wait a minute, I just got more info from the research team about Williamson. What do they say? He went to Cal Poly Pomona, and I'm thinking that's probably a pretty decent school it's for that stuff, school. especially in that era. And one of the things he helped to develop, most notably, is the Blu-ray disc. He helped develop the Blu-ray? That's pretty impressive. That's what it says. And Thomas Dolby helped invent the little chips that play ringtones and music in phones. We have all these amazing music, math, genius. They all go together. Marcus, all I'm going to say is the more 
I read or listen to musicians and studio people talk about stuff, I realize how little I know about recording other than to do this podcast with you, my friend. <laughs> One of the great things about doing this podcast is the fact that we get to learn so much. One of the many great things about this podcast. And that includes getting information from some of our friends in the rock and roll universe. And we uh, kind of, in our uh, episode about 1971, breezed by one album from Yes. There was the uh, first Yes album and then Time and a Word before the Yes album. So, you know, I remember that morning well. We were both pretty fried. Yes, we were. And riffing, and a lot of times that's not the best way to do this podcast, but there was that that I wanted to mention to you. And also, we got some really nice feedback from some of our listeners, Marcus, including uh, Karen, who said, OMG, I just got turned on to Pandora. I just found your podcast. I'm hooked. I love hearing shit like that, don't you? She says, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. Music was mine and my siblings' life. There were seven of us. We had a contest. You had to say the song, the year, and the label. Ooh, future DJ training. Yeah. And they would win bragging rights in their family when they didn't have their trivia questions. Keep up the great work. Thanks for all the memories. I was one of the people who were regulars at Studio 54. Ooh, we might want to have Karen on the on the podcast if to talk ever... about her experiences here. What do yeah. you think? I think that's a great idea. I would love to hear about some of the craziness of Studio 54. You're like our third stooge. It's me and Marcus and you guys, and it's pretty much what we do, and it is a learning experience. I'm glad to hear that we have some bingers out there, Marcus. Not bad. I mean, people binge TV shows, so why not binge the imbalanced history of rock and roll? I want to binge on an ice-cold crooked eye brew and then come back and talk about the albums and the rest of the insanity that is the stooges. Oh, the thirst. You can feel it building as we're doing the first half of an episode, but man, I really need this pint in my hand that is brewed by Jeffrey in the back room right there at the brewery at Crooked Eye in the heart of Hatboro. I know you love your favorite brews there too, buddy. Absolutely. Which uh, pint do you have in your hand? I'm holding a pint of the Burrow Blonde, which is a nice cream. Oh, that's really good. It's a nice, lighter-tasting beer. I like the ESB, the extra special bitters, uh, because of my affinity for it. And I've rarely found anything that even remotely is like the British bitters I originally fell in love with, other than what Jeff brews there at Crooked Eye. Yeah, some good beers at Crooked Eye. Another one to check out if you like ales is the Golden Eye. It's a clean ale, man. It is so nice. There's all kinds of flavors and all kinds of things, ciders and all kinds of beverages for you right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hapro. And now there's good news for you, Marcus, and all our friends in Delco. Really? What's this good news you speak of, Ray? As things are reopening, Jamie's House of Music, not far from you in Lansdowne, is now the home of Crooked Eye in Delco. So that means I can go there and grab a growler of their beer? Anytime they're open for a show and they're pouring, you can go to 32 South Lansdowne Avenue right there, not far from you, and stop by Jamie's House of Music to check out all the brews that are on tap and available from Crooked Eye. And the website is crookedeyebrewery.com. A great place, a local place that you can take with you. So take some with you wherever you go and spread the crooked eye love like we try to do here on the podcast. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. 
I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Jumping back in on the second half of our episode about Iggy and the Stooges, it's Punk Rock Month on the podcast, and I really enjoyed reviewing all of our previous episodes, reissues and remixes of previous episodes about punk rock, which we both love so much because of the difference in age. We came at it from a different time in life kind of thing, probably about the same age. I was probably the same age at the, about the time when you got into it, you know, it kind of worked out that way. But when you go back and you look at this, it goes back to the question that we discussed earlier, were the Stooges punk rock? There's an article that I want to post on our website that basically they put forth, the New Yorker puts forth the premise that punk is contingent upon the body and there are a few artists whose physical sacrifices felt as generative or as essential as Iggy Pop's. And it's an interesting article, but it also begs the question, how do you guys feel about it? Because we didn't really ask them to give us their feedback, Marcus. Yeah, let us know how you feel about it. Well, we've done a pretty good job so far of not getting overly focused on the Igmeister, on the Iguana Boy. He is front and center in all discussions about the Stooges and his life which has been very, very fruitful and challenging, I think, at times. He's lived the life. He didn't stop living the rock and roll punk rock life. He definitely didn't. And during the chaotic times of the Stooges when they were on the outs and may have broken up at that time after Jim Morrison died, the Doors asked Iggy Pop if he would be interested in fronting the Doors, and it was at the time he went into the mental institution. So he was kind of like, yeah, I'm little uh let's talk busy. about that what was that all about I don't remember. I didn't do as much research into that period of Iggy Pop as I did focus on all of the band. But I know that with the drugs, with the exhaustion, I think he also may have had that situation where he became too invested in a character, kind of the way Mm -hmm. Flip Wilson was invested in Geraldine and lost himself for a while. I think that happened to Jim Osterberg with Iggy Pop and between the drugs, the lifestyle, and all of that, I think he just wore out and may have well, even snapped a little bit. It happens. <laughs> That's and not an easy life. Depending on what you're doing and what kind of a mix you're taking of stuff. And uh, the physical part of being worn down by touring is very real. Anyone who's ever been on the road will tell you that, right? I believe that the rigorous lifestyle enables alcoholism and drug addiction because these people work hard and work a lot of hours for the music that we get to enjoy. Jim, or Jimmy, as a lot of his friends call him, has also turned out to be a bit of a cameo movie star. He was in uh, the Crow City of Angels movie, which we were talking about weeks ago. He was in had roles in The Color of Money and a non-speaking role in Sid and Nancy, which is kind of cool because they're talking about the sex pistols in that movie, and there's Jim. Also... <laughs> The Rugrats movie, mm-hmm. uh, Snow Day, and Coffee and Cigarettes, and Cry Baby, and Devin, and he'll show up. And Oh, and Tank Girl. I remember him in Tank Girl. Tank Girl was great. Crazy character. And those kind of things, I know people are like, you watch Tank Girl, Coop? What's What's up with that? <laughs> I watch all kinds of crazy, shitty movies. Trust me. Dang girls but awesome. uh, that's something, man. We could do a podcast about our favorite crusty, shitty movies that we watch. Anyway, you know. But uh, so he's had a career aside from music doing that kind of stuff. And you mentioned that uh, he was on the uh, MTV version of Bam's Wedding, the Bam's Unholy Union. And. The guy is just an amazing character, and if you're going to look for a front man, maybe with a few less kinks in the works, it's pretty tough to top that Jimmy Osterberg. 
Iggy's life was pretty interesting. He had a very close relationship with his parents. They lived in a trailer. He started playing drums at an early age because he had so much energy that his mom would let him bang on things. And when he was a boy, he got a drum kit and they set it up in the living room of the trailer. He had his little teeny bedroom and then his parents in the master bedroom. And every day after school and on the weekends, he would just play the crap out of his drums, just banging on his drums, just banging on his drums. You know, there's some old lady who remembered that Jimmy would always play his drums. Absolutely. Wow. And then eventually his parents, because they didn't discourage him, were kind of like, you take the master bedroom and they let him set his bed and drum set up in the master Mm -hmm. bedroom in the trailer. And then they had the little small bedroom that they slept in. This way they could read and kind of have not peace and quiet, but have their own little space. (laughs) (laughs) I think that right there set the course for what uh, Jimmy Osterberg wanted to do for the rest of his life. The brothers Ashton, Scott, I think he's the more the quiet one, right? Yes. Um, neither one of them lived what I consider in current terms a full life. Scott died at 64 and, uh, I don't know, heart attack. Yeah. It'll get you. And I think that's what got Ron, too, right? Yeah, I think heart so. Issues? Yep, heart issues as well. He was overweight and he was unhealthy, taking care of himself. And his body just gave out on him, which is too bad because the Ashton brothers were great. And say what you want, but without the Ashtons, without Dave Alexander, without Jim Williamson, Iggy would not have had the sounds. He would not have had the music that he had. Iggy taught Scott how to play drums. They called Scott the good-looking one in the band. He was a real pretty one. They said he wasn't very smart because he dropped out of school at a young age. And he was one of those kids who hung out at the record store that Iggy worked at and didn't pay attention to school, but he was passionate about music and he was tough. Super, super badass tough. He was one of those kids you always wanted on your side. You know, his brother Ron only made it to age 60. I didn't realize that till yeah. we got started. I knew that they, they both died too young. Way too young. But, yeah, but I didn't realize. And they are the core two cornerstones in the foundation of this band which went on to influence so many and so much i think when you look at it whatever influence the stooges had on punk rock directly or indirectly the nature especially of some of that sack stuff that mckay would add in some of the avant-garde stuff caused a lot of the people who were to become part of the new wave or the next wave to think of other sonic areas that they could play in. And the Brothers Ashton adds so much to that, as does Dave Alexander. I mean, I know that he wasn't the world's greatest bass player or anything like that, but another person who didn't last that long in the world died in 1975. He was just 27 and one of the unheralded members of the 27 Club. He was actually trying to leave the hospital to get beer because he wanted a beer so bad and didn't give a crap about his situation. He was that kind of an alcoholic, Mm. and he didn't really care. My guess is that at that point, he probably knew his time on this earth was limited, so he was going to have a drink and enjoy his alcohol for the rest of his time on the earth. Well, he was there in whatever form the Stooges took as long as he was around. And then Toby, damn it, came in and has pretty much been, you know, with the band in that chair up until 16 when they stopped touring. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've also got Bill Cheatham, who also died in the 90s, young. He played with them in 70. So did Zeke Zetner, who died in 1973. You see what I'm saying? It's like, wow. There's also a couple other names in here that I don't really know very well. I mentioned Scott Thurston, who played keyboards. I said guitar, but he played keyboards with them for a bunch of different periods of times. Bob Sheff played keyboards in 73, and a guy named Jimmy Recca played bass guitar with them in 1971. And that's during that period of time. A lot of those members that were in and out, they were there for a year or less or a year and a half or two. And uh, it was during that time when things were falling apart and evolving and de-evolving at the same time, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, aside from their legendary discography, and it's pretty small considering that they're a Hall of Fame band, right? True. Um, They also had a couple uh, live albums they did all in the 21st century, uh, live in Detroit, live at Coachella, and stuff like that. But you got to get back to the root of their recordings. That first album with John Cale at the helm, The Stooges. That album is amazing. 
Not all the songs are as memorable as I Want to Be Your Dog, but they all really made an impact at the time. No Fun kind of gave peek into what they were thinking, how they were feeling about life. And they weren't alone. They just didn't get it all out to everybody right away. And then, of course, you have Real Cool Time singing about a real cool time. These are teenage songs, and they really are relatable to the kids in their teens and early 20s, if you really think about it. And that aggression, that angst... They really, in a way, sort of bent the blues and took it in almost a perverse direction. They were all fans of the blues. They hated the hippies, and they loved the blues. But they knew that they couldn't play the blues as the African-American musicians did, and so they had to bend the blues to make it more relatable to who they were. Wow. Never thought of it that way. Good stuff, man. That album made a lot of impact. It really did as far as getting them out there. Because, you know, it seemed like everybody had an album. It was 1969, 68, 69, 70, 71. People were making albums like crazy. There was 16 and 24 track recording studios, and they were all getting a good workout at that point, you know? Even the big studios, like, you know, Musicland in Munich and stuff like that, we always talk about how Paige cleaned up and left the studio ready to go for the Stones to do Black and Blue. Two legendary albums recorded in the same studio back-to-back, Presence and Black and Blue. It happened all the time. That's how the Bowie and Queen Under Pressure song happened. They were working on different albums in adjacent studios and decided that they were going to do something together. And that's what came out of it. Shit happens. (laughs) Magical (laughs) shit. It is magical. But I'm glad we're talking about this first album because while you have all of that raw stuff and that angst and that energy of like 69 and I want to be your dog and no fun, there's the weirdness of We Will Fall, which is like the oming chant song. And that was a Dave Alexander thing. And that kind of, if you think about it, changed the direction of the album. Instead of making it this one all-across-the-board ass-kicker, it threw a curveball in there. Speaking of curveballs, did you notice that for the next record for Funhouse, who the producer was? I did, and I'm drawing a blank. Don Gallucci. Don Gallucci. Do you know that he was a member of the Kingsman? No, I did not. Whoa. Funhouse came to be because the studio was not very focused on the Stooges at that time as they were focusing on other artists that they felt maybe had a better upswing art trajectory as far as money goes. And they weren't really sure about what the Stooges' second album that they were tied to would bring. So they kind of left them alone. With well, Don the Gallucci. other part is Jack Holzman thought maybe that the MC5 was going to do more for them than they did. Funhouse, the record that drove your mama crazy when you were a kid growing up. That was his thing, man. TVI, Dirt Funhouse. Great songs. 1970s one that I really got into this week. Getting ready for this episode that I hadn't listened to maybe, I don't know, maybe ever. (laughs) And just really digging into this record and having fun with it. But this is also where I started to get the feeling that This isn't straight punk rock. This is something different, man. There's an avant-garde edge to it, and it comes in through Steve McKay. Mm-hmm. Gallucci added organ overdubs to the sound, which on the first album, there was none of that stuff. It's funny that they evolved this way. And you have Dirt, which is a seven minute song, Funhouse, which is a seven and a half minute song. Before they recorded their first album, a lot of their songs were songs that were like packing a punch for those first three minutes. And then they would get into these avant garde musical swings and turns. So they had a bunch of seven minute songs that they were playing live. Wow. Back in those like days, hippies. yes. Boy, but he hated the hippies. 
he wanted maybe he wanted to be Coltrane and 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 to the hippies, you know. He, he was very influenced by those guys, and they were big fans of John Coltrane. Yeah, you can tell it comes through. Yep, they found a guy that could give them what they wanted in that regard. But I got to tell you, this is the legendary album that everybody points to. It's you know with good reason. I mean, there are records that sound better, but this to me is kind of what the Stooges really were about. This record and Raw Power. And it's funny because, you know, when we really want to double check to see how things stand against the times, we always mm-hmm. turn to Lester Bangs. And he said some crazy stuff in his time, including his review of a Funhouse, where he's talking about it, it's kind of a convoluted thing, but he's talking about how, hey, you know, even though we gave the ball, all the credit to John Cale with the success of their first album, all the critics did, just like I did. And then he, he talked about how everybody gave him backhanded slaps and stuff like that. And But he does it in a, in a way that is just beautiful. It's in his, uh, what's it called? The uh, Pop Pies Fun? Pop and Pies oh, and Fun. Oh, my God. It's a really, really great essay. Go find it, or I'll try to post the link up on social media or stuff. But I found it in a, a Stooges forum, actually. And it, and it really shows, I don't want to read the whole thing, but it really showed me how he viewed them. And in some ways, he was kind of like their pipeline to the world. He was one of the guys that told people, check this shit out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a great read. I'm glad that you shared that with me. Learned a lot. And, of course, we've mentioned Lester Bangs and Bukowski and a few of the other great writers a few times. But their importance in the whole rock and roll family tree is monumental as well because they're the ones who wrote the words that made us interested if we read those reviews or read those interviews or read those articles. So their importance their value is equal to that of the musicians because they got the word out. One of the reasons why I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the Stooges at first, when I first started getting into rock and roll, well, first off, I didn't understand avant-garde, but 1970 at age 12. But I hadn't discovered Bowie yet. I hadn't discovered a lot of music that would come to mean a lot to me. But right around that time, they kind of break up. They kind of devolve, right? We talked about your concept earlier in the podcast about how they were evolving and devolving all at the same time, falling apart and growing at the same time. And maybe the next thing that happens, raw power, is the best example of that because it sounded a lot better. The songs were stronger. More of them have stood the test of time other than I Want to Be Your Dog and a couple other songs. More familiar in the general public consciousness and a great record man yeah it is it's a great record give me danger dude (laughs) search and destroy still to this day if you need a song that really picks you up man and you're down pop on search and destroy it'll get that blood flowing if you spin bike or do anything like that it's not a bad song to work out to as well Workout tips from Marcus. I can't believe it. history of rock and roll. Hey, man, whatever we can do to help people stay in good shape these <laughs> days, it's hard enough in the pandemic, although things are starting to open up a bit. So Raw Power comes out in 73, man, and that's the first time they start going out as Iggy and the, the Stooges, right? And at that point... I think only Iggy was under contract with the label, and they were hired musicians, wow. and so that's why that they did it. That must be tough. It. You're it was... in a band that's legendary already. You're coming back. You're making your move, but because of the business of the business, remember that Hunter Thompson quote, you're left in the hall, and you, you take what you get, and eventually things you know, maybe turn around. That's the way people had to approach it. It was a, This is also the period of time where Iggy's image starts to emerge, right? Mm-hmm. The cutting thing, I just never understood it, but I know it got a lot of attention, got a lot of press. He's one of the few musicians that we've talked about that didn't have an insane, crazy, bad childhood. Right. Well, he was really growing close up in the trailer isn't the best, but it's not like some of the stuff we've heard where people have grown up in traumatic situations. Yeah, you know, with abuse and assault yeah. and, and just horrible situations. And he seemed to grow up well, but he was definitely <laughs> a wild child. There's so many bands that covered the Stooges over the years. Go for it. Kim Gordon sings I Want to Be Your Dog, and she does it great with Sonic Youth. Bowie sang I Want to Be Your Dog live in the 80s. I want to sing I Want to Be Your Dog. (laughs) I'd try to sing it, but it would be so off-key, y'all would run. (laughs) 
the dictators covered no fun live um the velvet goldmine did tvi so so many bands have done songs by the stooges over the years and so many people like you hear the stooges guitar a lot in the mother love bone sound their guitars are totally influenced by iggy and the stooges pearl well, jam as this, well think, think about this if you put my song on your live album right mm-hmm. i still get paid my residuals and my publishing and all that stuff for all the sales on it. That was a way of not only showing tribute to a band that either influenced you or you admired, it actually threw cash their way. And that in the same way is the way that a lot of artists would cover blues classics and have hits with them to help the old generation of blues men. There's a lot of that stuff that happened in rock and roll too, especially when it came to live albums. And I just thought that was interesting to plug in there. That's very fascinating. And the bands doing their songs live, as well as so many bands that have covered them. And if you Google up Stooges cover, the list is huge, huge. I just, we don't have time to go through it all. And there are other aspects of the Stooges that are far more fascinating. Well, there's a long gap there before they get to the weirdness and in there, uh, Jimmy does a lot of really great records. He does The Idiot and Lust for Life. And I think we should at some point just do an Iggy episode about his solo time. Yes. But he does some great music in there and uh, a lot of swerves and girls. And it brings him back around to the Stooges, which I think for them, everything in life has revolved around what happened in uh, 1969 through 1973. And there they are, a new century and a new album. From the Stooges? The weirdness? What up? It definitely flies in the weirdness category. It's true to Stooges form. <laughs> that Albini at the controls. They did really well. They were playing a lot of festivals in Europe, and they were in a groove, and the younger generation was getting to appreciate the Stooges the way a few people got to appreciate them in their early days. and They yeah. were bigger when they came back around than they were originally. And there would be one more Stooges album in 2013, Marcus, called Ready to Die. And I got to tell you, I didn't have a whole lot of time this week to dig into that album. I really couldn't find it on Spotify. I'm going to have to look around. But James Williamson is at the controls for what would be the final album from the Stooges. Uh, Just a couple years later, uh, Scott would pass away and things changed. On this album, of course, James Williamson on guitar. And Mike Watt had joined the band on bass by that point and was recording with them regularly. And Steve McKay. McKay. (laughs) On saxophone, making it feel strange. And um, I don't know, man. I always think in terms of how much bigger they could have been i don't think they could have been better they are who they are they were who they were but i always think in terms of how could they have been bigger maybe what if they hadn't had all the problems that they had that caused all the issues that caused them to waste years and time i don't know it's just uh, me i don't think the stooges would have been the way they are any other way i think all of these events had to happen the way they did for us to get what we got from them It's probably the best way to look at it, but I'm thinking like from 1974 to, you know, all those years into the early 2000s, it's just a lot of years and maybe it could have been a lot of music, but the players have to get along and people start passing away. It changes the vibe, changes the chemistry, and I get all that. When it came time for Jim to take the solo road, he didn't have a problem doing that. We talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, not as much as the guys on the Rock Hall podcast. Oh, by the way, I saw that they were going to be guests on the Almost Famous Minute podcast. Nice. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. But at the Rock Hall, they have yet to recognize what we've discussed and what we think is the truth about the matter, and that is that the Stooges have been in since 2010, and yet the MC5 sits there waiting, although they seem to be getting closer. Remember that Hunter Thompson quote? <laughs> and that's all I got to say about about that. But I'm glad that they got in. They are, by the definition that we've given it, deserving, having changed things, having made things different from what they were before. And the class that they went in with was uh, pretty interesting. That's all I'm going to say. is very diverse. Going in, in alphabetical order, also inducted, 
in 2010. ABBA, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, a fantastic songwriting duo, Otis Blackwell, both of which received Amit Erdogan Awards. Uh, But performers that they went in with included Jimmy Cliff, Genesis. Wow. The Hollies. Wow. Pretty good batch to go in with. A lot of Mm -hmm. Erdogan Award winners in that year, most notably... The one and only David Geffen. Wow. All part of the class of 2010 and some other people that we don't need to get into. Mm -hmm. But how weird that the Stooges and ABBA went in together. (laughs) That's crazy. You know, The Rock calls funny that way. And I know we give him a lot of crap here on the podcast, but, you know, it's fine. (laughs) Well, my friend, here we are just about ready to wrap up this punk rock month. Our first ever punk rock month. Talking about the Stooges, a band that we both admired, even though we were too, both too young mm-hmm. to appreciate them in their first iterance. But the good thing about music is you can always go back and steal your brother's vinyl, steal your dad's vinyl, <laughs> start to get to the point where you're stealing grandpa's vinyl, and just track some tunes and rediscover music that they knew. Find music that you've heard about. Mm-hmm. And just listen. And listen to the music of Iggy and the Stooges from the beginning through. And some of Jim's solo stuff, too. Yeah. Just great stuff. And, and, they, and it doesn't let you down. It, it's there for you to learn about. A lot of it now is all on, on the digital music services, too. So, yeah. uh, including Spotify, which, by the way, is getting to be a big player in podcasts. Including, since it's Punk Rock Month, I have to promote this. There's a podcast about The Clash. It's hosted by the one and only Chuck D. And it's actually one of their Spotify's original developments, something that they've developed. And it's one of the few podcasts that when I listen to it, go, oh, man, they got this right. It's called Stay Free, The Story of the Clash. And it's narrated by Chuck D. And it's a lot more scripted than we are, but it's a pretty cool podcast if you want to check it out. And it's on Spotify Studios. And you can find it right there on Spotify. Before we wrap it up, can I throw a couple of tidbits of info your way about Iggy and the Stooges? Did we miss something? I thought we covered pretty much everything. A couple of wild little things I want to share. Like, for their first gig as the Psychedelic Stooges, Iggy wore a white 1800s nightshirt gown, and he painted his face white. He wore white guy hippies afro wig and he shaved his eyebrows and during the set he learned exactly why he needs his eyebrows as all the makeup and sweat ran into his eyes and swelled his eyes up wow and he left stage all like well i also i'm going to try to find uh the link and post it there is footage of him and the band at the cincinnati pop festival and i'm not sure what year it was but i watched some of it while we were getting ready to do the episode this week and it's must see tv if you're a stooges fan you might not have even seen this one yet buddy but it's really good stuff and it shows him in his semi-glam totally punk stage diving best Uh. the slim uncut (laughs) iggy pop yeah with the 12 pack abs (laughs) well man they are a gift to the universe really and there's so much written about them just go out there and start doing your little google searches and find the music if you haven't already because dude when it boils down to it i want to be your dog one of the most essential songs in rock and roll is the cornerstone Mm -hmm. of the stooges that opening riff gets your blood flowing right as soon as those notes are felt It's the kind of music that makes you feel everything right to the core. It's our episode about the Stooges wrapping up Punk Rock Month here on the podcast. Dude, made me feel a little bit of that youthful juice I used to get (laughs) going to shows listening to that new record from the band that really should never have been there. It's just a fun way to wrap up Punk Rock Month here on the podcast. I've enjoyed it, and hopefully you all have enjoyed listening to the various episodes. Some of them may be unfamiliar to you. The earliest episodes, a lot of people haven't heard. We don't even know how many of you have caught the later episodes. We're just trying to keep up with everything and do what we do every time we crack the mic here at our Dark Doc Media Studios. 
If you want to reach out, if we missed anything on the Stooges episode, if we left out any information, got anything wrong, if there's anything that you would like to share or add to the discussion, please email us, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com, or hit us up on one of our social media sites, Facebook, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, at Imbalanced Histo on Twitter, and The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll on Instagram, or you can uh, even find our podcast via LinkedIn. Yeah, I've got it up on my uh profile usually just want to remind everybody july coming up before you know it marcus it's going to be summertime in july it's going to be listener episode month we've had some great episode suggestions from our audience and we're in the process of putting those together with them Mm -hmm. and that's something else that we're pretty excited to try something different it's all about the stooges on the imbalance history i don't know about you but i enjoy digging into the music and relearning a lot of stuff uh, about a band and a guy I learned a lot about Iggy and uh, some fun stuff in there. So hopefully everybody enjoyed the the, uh, episode. Time to go, my friend. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.